Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. For this episode, I had the privilege of speaking to linguist Lynn Stone. For me personally, this was a bit of a full circle moment because her book, Reading for Life played a key role in forcing me down the pathway of the science of reading. In this chat, you will find out how Lynn's passion for literacy developed, why we can't teach the English language like we have a transparent orthography, and how reading and writing are not simple, but you can view them simply. She also addresses a number of misconceptions about teaching literacy and provides loads of practical tips for teachers. I love her way of explaining things, and I hope you do as well. Here is my conversation with Lynn Stone. Thank you for joining me today, Lynn. I know that you have provided so much support for teachers in implementing structured literacy practices, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. To start with, can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? Yeah, I finally settled on a title um, after many, many years of wondering what the heck I should call myself, um, because my journey into education has been kind of non-standard. Uh, so I studied linguistics at uh, University College London and just a humble BA um, and went straight from London to Sydney. Uh, my dad is a diplomat and was working in uh, Australia at the time and I kept getting tickets to go visit him. So I thought, well, Australia's nice. And so I landed in Sydney and, uh, and, and immediately started looking for work and found a job in Linda McBell Learning Processes, which is a clinic that deals specifically with children who have um, children and adults who, who struggle with literacy and language for some reason or other. Uh, and, and my degree fit very, very well with one of the programs that they were running, which at the time was called the AD program, ADD, which is an unfortunate acronym now, but this was before ADD, ADHD was, a, was even in the DSM. Yeah. So that, that was called auditory discrimination in depth. And they, they, they ran a program to do with getting children to be aware of articulatory gestures and phonological awareness. And they were one of the first people that actually talked about the importance of phonological awareness for literacy development. And so it really fit because I'd majored in phonetics and phonology. It really fit. And so I went straight in there and started working full time, you know, six students a day, five days a week um, on phonological awareness and other skills to do with building literacy. So I was really lucky to be in there. And that's kind of when I caught the intervention bug uh, all I wanted to do was work with people who struggled. And uh, and then after Linda Mood Bell, I worked in a speech pathology clinic. I was the only non-speech pathologist, but because I was a linguist, I was kind of allowed to kind of enter that arena. And I'd had that training beforehand. And I was trained in Spalding, which is a classic sort of Orton Gillingham program yeah. and used that and, and combined that with, with the, the, the things I'd learned at Linda Mood Bell and then became just really interested in spelling spelling errors and grammar and the fact that there wasn't really anything out there on the market that, that addressed the nitty-gritty of those those particular approaches to language so I started writing that 
stuff myself and and now you know in the year 2023 I've written three books on that and 23 programs on it and I'm a teacher trainer so that's 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 the nutshell of, of who I am and where I came from yeah you know just kind of going back a little step um your, your passion for uh you know English and reading and writing it's really clear every time I've ever heard you speak or you know just from reading your books what kind of brought that passion on initially you know was it someone in particular or you know the process that you went through mostly it was about the struggles yeah it was about seeing children who were painfully aware of their average or above average intelligence in a lot of cases but who absolutely could not read and write at the same rate or develop their literacy at the same rate as other children could and that that, that sort of painful uh, experience that they were having mm. and the fact that it could have been so it was so easily relatively speaking remediated that drove me to think well wait a minute well how come they're doing private tutoring where actually at school if they the teachers had just done this consistently over a few years they wouldn't want to come and see us or have all of these conversations these internal conversations like I'm dumb I'm lazy I'm worthless yeah. you know so that it's the students that struggled that really really drove my passion and drove me to look further and further into this situation that we have in in the anglophone world yes. um, in education where we could do a lot better with the foundations of literacy yeah, you know, you make some really good points there. And, and I think that's where a lot of teachers kind of end up is that they get to this stage where they get frustrated with what is happening or not happening, uh, you know, and so they do start to look for other places or other bits of information. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that that's a process that you went through as well. Well, a lot of the time, um, in many cases, those teachers are ones who blithely will we'll, we'll take their training at face value because as we know, teacher training, initial teacher education and that sort of thing is not fit for purpose in terms of literacy and I dare say numeracy as well yeah. um, due to you know, the rise of progressive education. But a lot, in a lot of cases, these, these teachers would blithely do what they'd been taught because that's what they knew mm. and then they would have their own children and suddenly realise, oh, my child isn't actually thriving with this and would have this this turnaround that went wait a minute everything I've known has been fairly ineffective everything I've done has been fairly ineffective so um I, you know I, I see that a lot and of course accompanied with yeah, that is 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 the guilt and the, the you know the the terrible thing that they had to confront about the all the children that they had been teaching using methods that weren't again fit for purpose yeah, you know, what, what about some challenges that you've faced, you know, on a, a personal level? Because I'm sure, you know, anyone that's been involved with the, the science of reading sort of movement uh, would have would have faced a, a fair bit of backlash at some stage. You know, what about yourself? Look, I'm Scottish and uh, backlash is fine for me. I, I enjoy a battle. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't have any problems with that. And also I think... I think I've sort of been known in the industry to be a straight shooter in terms of, look, I understand that you have emotions, but actually the emotions of the children that your methods are not helping are far more important to me. Um, you know, so what I've encountered a lot of the time is, is, is some conflict, but um, because what we do at Lifelong Literacy, for instance, and what other, my colleagues do who, who understand how reading takes place and how writing takes place and so on, that that kind of ameliorates any of the the, the unpleasantness and the, the the hurdles 
that you that you have to encounter you know just in terms of um, opposition and conflict it ameliorates all of that because your end goal is to get the best deal possible for the largest amount of children including those children who um, suffer at the hands of, of, of poor instruction yeah you know you're, you're 100% right there and I've kind of found the same thing is when you you're able to have a, a really clear idea on what your purpose is uh, it doesn't it, it makes it a lot easier when you are, you know, coming up against people who are challenging things that you're saying or what you're doing. Um, but yeah. it's important that you're able to kind of get that sort of connection with them as well uh, so that you are able to kind of hold their hand through that, that change management process. Yeah, and look, before I started really focusing on training teachers, I focused on teaching individual children and so my approach was always very um I'm a tiger and I'm I'm going to advocate for you and I'm going to tell everybody how wrong they are blah 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 and then when I started training teachers because what I was doing was working and, and so teachers wanted and schools wanted more and more of that I realized that I would have to also deal with the emotions that teachers felt in terms of I paid 30 grand for this degree <laughs> And, and I got an A and I worked really hard and you're telling me that this is nonsense? You know, I, I, so I had to, had to sort of make my approach a little bit more sympathetic to that. And I've definitely, definitely tried to do that. Um, as, I've, as I've written countless times, there, what I've encountered is sort of three, three types of, mm. of, and this is very broad because everybody's different, but yeah. you know, there's, there's these three types of, of, of educators that I've, I've bumped into over the years. And the ones that I want to invest my time and energy in are a specific type. And that's what I call the lifelong learners, the ones who can emotionally deal with the fact that maybe they, they could change or, yeah. or keep learning, know better, do better. Those are the ones I want to concentrate on. Uh, those are the ones that my investment of time and energy will get the greatest return. Then there's the the blissful plotters, and they're you know they're the ones that are kind of happy to be unaware of the situation, and they'll use lazy terms like "oh that pendulum swing," you know, it's gone from phonics to whole language and back <laughs> again. You know they, that that they're I don't invest a lot of time in those, and I'm not that invested in their emotional response to what I say either. Yeah. And then we've got you know, the diehards, you've, you know, you've got, you've got the ones who are incredibly wedded to one set of, of, of um, erroneous assumptions about reading and writing, who will die on that hill, mm. because it's so mixed up with their identity, they're so invested emotionally, and from a psychological identity point of view, and those are the ones that I battle with. So I will put time and energy into battling with them, but I don't feel that there's a lot of change that can be made so the majority of my work is is within that scope of helping the lifelong learners become faster stronger better at all of this stuff yeah you know and i, and I guess from a, a school point of view or school leaders point of view they can't necessarily let go you know those uh those people who are uh, emotionally connected to you know different ways of doing things um but i do i do like how you, you've said that if we can still put most of our energy into those that are open and, and lifelong learners, I think, you know, that's how we'll, we will get out, you know, best bang for our buck. And, um, you know, once you kind of start to see some results and you start to get a bit of change and a bit of improvement, then you can get the others on board. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got the majority, um, you know, and, and the others will either kind of jump in line or uh, they will jump ship. 
Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And there's all these, you know, there's just some really fabulous work being done in this space in, case, in terms of identifying the early adopters in a system and making sure that they're really equipped to be as persuasive in a kind and gentle way as possible. And those categories that I talk about are broad categories and also people can transform from one category into another. I, I have seen, you know, the, the, the sort of the dogmatic refusers of any any new information flip and become lifelong learners. Um, yes. So, I guess, you know, and so there's a potential there. I guess the blissful plotter section where they're waiting for the retirement or just don't really have the mental capacity to deal with this new information and use it. Those are the ones that are, are, are the most difficult to work with. And if you're talking about time investment, it's those two, you know, those two extremes, the blissful plotters, not the blissful plotters, sorry, the, um, the, the lifelong learners and the dogmatic, you know, um, opposed people, they're worth the energy, I think. I mean, everyone's worth energy, but you have to assign, um, you know, realistically, you have to assign your energy to where it's going to get the most return. Exactly. Uh, so look, let's, let's go to a bit of an overview of, of what the simple view of reading and writing is. I, I, I'm happy to do this and, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk about it. It's really good with diagrams though. So if you are listening and this floats your boat, you totally need to go to the work of Hollis Scarborough. So that's Scarborough's reading rope because that is the simple view of reading uh, unpacked. And you also need to go to Virginia Berninger's work called the, the simple view of writing. And there are, are the people apart from Berninger who did that, but Berninger was sort of came up with this idea that there's a simple view of writing. John Sedita does a brilliant treatment of that called the writing rope as well. So if you want more than just this summary, those are the places to go. Yeah, but and I'll summary, put those in the show notes. Okay. Sure, yeah, yeah, go for it. That, that's, that, you know, that's what I base my work on uh, a lot of the time. But, but basically in terms of simple views, both for reading and writing, the overview is, is like this. Reading and writing are not simple, but you can view them simply. You can view them in terms of two critical processes that are separate and that can be separately assessed and separately remediated. But what you want to do is combine those processes. So both in reading and writing, there are two separate processes that have parallels with one another. Reading and writing are not the same thing. They're not the flip side of one another. It doesn't follow that if you can read, you can write. That's not true at all. So the simple view of reading and the simple view of writing need to be viewed in terms of their component parts. That's the first thing. But the thing that they have in common is that there are two critical processes that align with one another. With reading, the simple view of reading says that um, reading with comprehension relies on these two critical processes working together. The first critical process is decoding. So you've got to get the words off the page somehow. And you can arrive at that through all sorts of means, uh, but there are very, very efficient ways of decoding and there are very inefficient ways of decoding. Again, I don't think we have long enough to go into the, the, the different strands of that, but decoding is the, is, is the first critical process involved in reading. And then there's linguistic comprehension. So yes, you may be able to get the words off the page, but do you know what they mean? And do you know what they mean in combination with the other words <laughs> as well? And do you know what they mean in combination with the context in which those words are being written? And do you know what they mean in terms of the context of the wider world? So that's linguistic comprehension. So those two together will then allow you, if you're, if you're um, increasingly 
automatic at decoding. And if you're increasingly strategic at linguistic comprehension, that will allow you to develop your reading comprehension. You, you, you will be able to understand what you read. I'll give you an example of, of where one can work without the other, but you don't get reading comprehension. I can decode any French word, right? Because I, I studied French from kind of the age of nine yeah. uh, all the way to the age of 18. And, uh, and so I've got a big French vocabulary and I'm really, really, really familiar with French phonology as well. So I can look at any French word and I can basically arrive at a, at a pretty good pronunciation of that word. So I could read you a passage in French fluently, not in a French accent, but certainly, you know, mm. sounds okay. Um, but because I don't use French anymore and my vocabulary is limited because you, you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't really, I couldn't pick up a French newspaper now and really tell you what was going on in that article. And I certainly wouldn't be able to pick up a French book and, and, and just read it through and tell you how the story went. I, I wouldn't know. So I can decode in French, but my linguistic comprehension needs to be brought up. So that's, you know, that, that's a good contrast between those two. I'm not a strategic French reader. I'm an automatic French reader, but not strategic, right? Yeah. So that's that's the difference between those two things. And, and, and children can be good at one and not the other. So you can be good at linguistic comprehension and everything that you hear, but if you don't know how to decode, then your, your reading comprehension is going to suffer. So that's a simple view of reading. So you've got those two parts there, right? You've got um, decoding and linguistic comprehension. In something of a parallel to that is the simple view of writing. The simple view of writing basically says it consists of two critical processes. The first critical process is transcription. So that's being able to put the words onto the page. And that entails all kinds of skills that reading doesn't need, like posture, pencil grip, um, letter formation, spacing, all of those things that you don't need for reading. So that's where, again, where writing and reading separate and they separate very quickly. But you've got transcription. Also, you've got, those are the mechanics that I was talking about of transcription, but there's also the uh, the conventions, you know, like spelling, syntax, mm -hmm. punctuation, all of those things. You've got to know that stuff and, and, and you've got to be increasingly automatic at that. That's a lot. It takes years and years. I mean, as a child, even as an 18 year old, you're not that brilliant at this, right? You keep developing that. Um, but you need to get somewhat automatic at that to be understood in print. And then there's that other part, that other critical process in, in writing. And that's that's the strategic part called text generation. And that's, you know, or ideation as it's, as it's also known, where you can actually formulate ideas and then put them into print so that your ideas flow, so that you can write a sentence and you can think of the next sentence. It's that connection to the very next sentence that's so critical and difficult. And it's impaired by, by low transcription skills. So you've got transcription and ideation, and they're kind of parallel to decoding and linguistic comprehension. And they, you know, they 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 have a lot in common. But that's, you know, but there are so many other different processes to writing that it would be a mistake to say that one is a mirror of the other. So in a nutshell, those are the simple views. Yeah, you know, and I like how you started off with saying how there's a simple view of reading and writing. And you can view it that way, but it doesn't mean that it's actually simply simple to learn, you know. And, and I think that's the important part there and where one of those big misconceptions comes into it is that we just, um, you know, we can sometimes assume that children will just learn to read and, and write 
uh, without actual you know, explicit instruction in it. Absolutely, Brendan. And if you consider the fact, right, and, and again, uh, I don't have research to back this up. So this I'm saying is a fact. It's my opinion, right? It's my observation. So here's the caveat. I've observed this and you may have observed this too, but people in education, teachers especially, tend to kind of like reading and writing. It, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, teachers are wordsmiths. They, they, they did read the dictionary when they were little or they learned to read and write kind of effortlessly. So they have, and I'm not talking about all teachers. There are teachers who did struggle as well and they do make very, very empathetic teachers. But the majority, the teachers, you know, that over, over the years of training that I've done with teachers, they tend to kind of like, well, they, they're word nerds, okay? Yeah. Let's, let's get it out there, they're kind yes. of word nerds. Okay? Yeah. So they've got this this thing that made it so that it was they just took to all of that with ease. Now what that what that creates is a bit of a, a a logical difficulty because it's very hard for them to understand how someone could struggle, and they have to overcome their own ease that they mm. took to this with, so that they can then reach into or care about or even know that the struggling students in their classes are not doing it because they're lazy or badly behaved or any of these other things, but because they have a different way of thinking about print than these ones who took to it with ease. Yeah, you know, it's the old uh, curse of knowledge that gets so many teachers, you know, and I know I definitely suffered it myself and because um, I, I kind of had a, a bit of a funny journey where I started off as a high school teacher and then went into primary. And right. so I didn't really have, um, you know, the, the, I wasn't taught properly how to teach reading and writing. Um, I was just able to transfer, uh, you know, from being a high school teacher to primary. And so going into yeah, a, a year four classroom, which is where I started my, uh, my primary teaching journey, and then trying to, you know, you know that you're meant to teach reading and writing, but I literally had no idea what I was meant to be doing. Yeah, but Brandon, you weren't alone. Yes. Because people who were primary teaching trained had no idea either because it was devalued <laughs> mm. within the you know the initial teacher education um world uh you, you know there were all these theories about oh reading and writing just immerse them in print and show them how much you love it and they'll be fine and you know what the majority of children will sort of be fine and that's yes. what validates the entire approach to hands-off non-explicit mm. adventure teaching reading and writing so you one advantage that you may have had coming from um, you know, your, your high school background was that you actually didn't have to unlearn any of the nonsense. Exactly. At all about yeah. reading and writing. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I've, I've often thought about this and I was kind of uh, fortunate to be given your book at about that sort of stage as I was kind of um, tra transitioning into primary teaching. And so, um, like you said, rather than, you know, learning the wrong way of doing things, I had a, I definitely had a go at it. <laughs> Um, but I was able to also work out pretty quickly that it wasn't working the way that learning should should happen. You know, I, I had um, students who were disengaged um, that shouldn't really have been disengaged at all. And, and, you know, because I have experienced what good teaching and learning looks like and feels like, um, I knew that it wasn't happening in my classroom. And I guess for me, uh, that wasn't good enough. And so I did start asking questions. And, yeah, as I said, I was just fortunate um, to have been given the right information at the right time, um, you know. That in interests right me, actually, Brenda. So when you say my book, are you talking about reading, reading for life? Reading for life. Yes, sorry, reading for life. 
And, and were you given that book by like a senior or just a friend or like how did that happen? My good old mother. Um, she's she was she's just retired as a deputy principal. Wow. Um, yeah, and so I basically yeah just asked her like you know how do I teach reading how do I teach kids to read, <laughs> and so yeah she I think she actually asked one of her teachers you know for a recommendation of a book, um, yeah and so that kind of ended up um, I can't remember exactly when I got it but yeah it just answered a lot of the questions that I had and and for me I guess it made sense um, because what I was seeing what I was doing in the classroom wasn't working, and so yeah it just made a lot of sense but what, what one Funny thing, you know, as I've um, engaged with your book again, now that I, I know a lot more um, than what I did back then, I actually understand it a lot better now. <laughs> and, and I think about, you know, like, what, what you know, what was I actually taking in, um, you know, as I was reading it that first time and, and you know, trialling different things in the classroom. But, yeah, it's just, a, I guess, a, uh, an interesting reflection to have, you know, when we're looking at how you, you learn and, and gain knowledge and how, you know, you need knowledge to gain knowledge. Um, I yeah, actually, without yeah. Shamelessly, without shamelessly plugging too much, there, there is a course that goes along with it, you know, that that helps you to kind of digest it because, again, it, it all of my books can be fairly dense because they're kind of a download of everything I've ever learnt or read <laughs> about yes. those subjects. And and so, you know, um, yeah, doing actually doing the training with it has been helpful for lots of teachers too. Yeah, you know, and I, and I guess. Um, like when we do look at how effective learning happens and, and particularly, you know, professional learning for teachers, it doesn't happen in just these kind of one-off instances, you know, and so I think that's that's kind of what you're getting at there with your training. Um, yeah, you know, and so it's on- like coaching, like things like Lorraine Hammond has really, really hammered this idea that coaching is what you need. And, and she talked very recently in an article about drive-by PD where, yes. you know, the expert turns up, downloads a load of information and then buggers off again, never to be seen. Um, and it's not a particularly effective way of working with, with schools, you know. So, uh, and, the, and then that, of course, leads into the science of learning, which if you get into the science of reading, suddenly you realise it's this tiny subset of yes. this massive science <laughs> called the science of learning or, you know, um, the cognitive science. And you suddenly realise, oh, there's a lot to it, isn't there? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. About the rabbit hole. Exactly. Um, so for this next part, I just want to kind of look at different focus areas and then for each one, address common teacher misconceptions or mistakes that you, you kind of come across quite often. And then uh, if you can provide some top tips for teachers, that'd be great as well. So the first one I just want to look at is uh, reading. Yeah, well, I think the most common, and um, look, Brendan, if they're listening to your podcast, they, they may already have overcome this misconception, but I, it does, I think it does everybody a lot of favors to keep talking about why we have things like the reading wars. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it's from this misconception. And the misconception is that children will learn to read in a biologically primary way. You know, like they've learned to talk or they've learned to walk or they've learned to establish a pincer's grip or do all of those other things that the human brain is primed to do. Mm. And so there's this philosophy and it's a philosophy, it's not even a theory, it's a philosophy that if you just provide enough opportunities for children to engage with print, they're going to learn to read. 
And actually the opposite is true. The more explicit you are and the better and more systematic your scope and sequence is, the more children you're going to take along and the higher quality results you're going to get in a shorter amount of time. So reading is not biologically primary. It's mm -hmm. not like walking, it's not like talking. It is something that has to be, as Steven Pinker puts it, painstakingly bolted on from scratch. Mm -hmm. It's just that some children will go through those phases of learning this really fast and others will need lots of focus and higher doses at different phases of that learning, but they all go through that learning, which leads to the second misconception. And that misconception I hear a lot, even in science of reading circles. And that misconception is all children learn differently. Mm. No, they don't. Human brains are much more similar than they are different. And when it comes to reading, they go through the same phases. It's just that the phases can be very, very rapid or very, very slow. And the more efficient your system is, the more it ameliorates the deficits that some children bring to reading in terms of their neurological structures. But they don't they don't all learn differently. You, you, you don't have to have a, you know, a 30 fold differentiated reading curriculum in a classroom. And that's where that kind of the confusion comes from. And, and that's what turns maybe people who started out as lifelong learners into blissful plodders. It's like, oh, they all learn differently anyway. So mm. I'm just gonna do the thing that works for a minority whatever that thing i'm wedded to is hmm. um yeah so i guess just looking into that what does it look like for teachers you know what sort of things should they be doing uh you know whether it's choosing a phonics program you know what sort of things should they be looking at well i think teachers choosing a phonics program is is if they're going from balanced literacy or whole language to phonics that's commendable but honestly, what's really going to make the best kind of changes is that if systems mm. select phonics programs, they need to select programs that are systematic so that there's a scope and a sequence and synthetic, which means that they start with easier sound to symbol relationships and show children explicitly how to blend those symbols into words. So that's what systematic synthetics phonics, sorry, I'll do it again. That's what systematic synthetic phonics is. There are lots of versions of phonics out there. Everybody's got a phonics shingle now mm -hmm. out in front of their, you know, their, their marketing, um, you know, their marketing building. Um, but systematic synthetic phonics has been shown over and over again to be the most effective for the highest number of children. So Teachers selecting phonics programs need to bear that in mind, but teachers selecting phonics programs need to vie for being part of a system that selects those programs rather than just doing all of that in a silo because you don't learn to read and write in one year. Mm. So if you're a teacher, you've got your kids for one year before they move on. In most cases, you've got to advocate for a system that will keep those children going through that scope and sequence for many years. So that's that that's the top tip when it comes to selecting phonics programs. Yeah. Um, I would say, look, if you're if your audience is, is primarily Australian, go for the Australian ones. Little Learners Love Literacy is a great program. There's there's a great systematic synthetic pro sorry, synthetic phonics. I don't know why I can't say this tonight. Synthetic <laughs> phonics program. It's 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 by Australians for Australians. You 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 know. I, I don't mean to play favorites or anything like that, but I kind of scratch my head when when people go to other programs when there's a really good one right here for Australians. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're in America, 
you know, there, there are great American ones. If you're in the UK, there are great UK ones. Use those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, from a day-to-day uh, teacher's point of view, what sort of activities can they be doing? In terms of boosting children's reading? Yeah. Well, I'll answer that again from, from an intervention point of view because a, they'll have a population of children who take to it and it's all done. And then there's a population of children who, who struggle. Now, if they're using systematic synthetic phonics and those children are still struggling, the feedback that I get a lot of the time, so I'll address this feedback because, again, we're limited by time, right? Yeah. But I'll address the feedback that I see most often. And that is this child is stuck at sounding out. So they will go the, the, cat, cat, and so on, right? How do I move them to the, to the next you know, how do I how do I increase their fluency? What can I do? And what I found, again, it's not something that I invented, but something that a, a woman called Dolores Hiskus, and she is from the United States, came up with was this thing called Reading Pathways. And it is a fluency intervention um, resource that is really, really well written and well put together that takes children through that. Okay, you can sound out, now put them together, practice that. And she, she's built these things called, you know, fluency pyramids where mm-hmm. they'll go cat, the cat, the fat cat, the fat cat, Max, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it will, it will get, get them very safely in a very scaffolded way to take that leap from just saying the individual sounds to actually saying the words. Um, you know, so that's what I recommend. Reading pathways. I've got lots of videos on reading pathways. When I go into schools and they ask me to demonstrate intervention, I will pull out reading pathways. I'll say, give me your hardest, like give me the child that you just cannot move. Yeah. And we'll sit together and within one lesson, using that resource, they're going to start moving and, and, and making great progress. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So the next area that we can talk about is spelling. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know anything about that, Brendan. I'm not sure why you've what? asked me here. Not, not <laughs> oh, that. Oh, that old chestnut. Um, that old thing. So now look, spelling is, is, is something that I really, you know, have a lot of um, interest in because in terms of the writing system, so there's this whole system that, that children have to learn and become proficient at. In terms of that, spelling's the linchpin. We get really caught up in trying to get children to read fluently and a lot of instructional time is spent on that and a lot of intervention is spent on that. And yet spelling is not reading and writing is not reading and spelling Mm -hmm. is the bridge between reading and writing. So it's the bridge between being able to transcribe your basic sound symbols to being able to transcribe almost anything within the orthography. So spelling is a huge, you know, it's something that's really that occupies much of my heart territory, if you like. The one thing, the common misconception about spelling is that teachers will um, will prompt children who, who encounter an unfamiliar word and want to write that inf- unfamiliar word, teachers will prompt them this way. Listen for the sounds in the word and write down a grapheme for that sound or write down a letter or letter group for that sound. Now that will work in monosyllabic regular words. Mm-hmm. How many of those are in English? What, what sort of percentage are of, of the words that we encounter and that we need to express on paper are monosyllabic regular words. Not many. I don't, I don't I, know either, right? But it's 
small percentage, right? It's not a lot. Mm. So to teach English spelling as if we have this transparent orthography is a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. And it's where teachers get bogged down. They get bogged down at, well, spell it like it sounds. Mm. Now, how is that going to help children, for instance, with there, there, there? Because they all sound the same. Mm. How is it going to help teachers teach students the difference between your and your? If you've ever seen anything on the internet, you know that the your, your distinction is incredibly rife, right? Nobody, not, nobody really knows the difference or, or very few people you know, who are writing on the internet know the difference between your and your because spelling it like it sounds is not sufficient for spelling. What about schwa vowels? In every mm. unstressed syllable, you've got this vowel that sounds like this. Uh, you know, like a, what, what a teenager says when you go, can you load the dishwasher, <laughs> right? It's just effortless uh, sound like that, right? How do you know that it sounds like this? Uh, what's the letter? What are the letter combinations? Spelling it like it sounds is not going to help you. So teachers need to know that transcription of sounds is a very, very, very surface approach to spelling. Yeah. And yet there are incredibly successful, incredibly popular spelling programs on the market right now, taking up lots of instructional mm. time, lots of PD dollars that are based on spell it like it sounds. And that's just that's just awful. That's yeah. awful. There are other layers there are etymological, morphological and unusual spelling type layers that teachers need to learn mm -hmm. and need to be able to teach. And that's hard. You got to mm. be a lifelong learner if you're going to do that. Otherwise, you will get stuck at spell it like it sounds. Yeah, I guess kind of building on, you know, that misconception that you've just spoken about. Um, the other one is that you know the notion that the English writing uh, language contains a complex code. <laughs> well, you have pushed a button there, haven't you, Brendan? <laughs> right? There's, it's it's like the Matrix, isn't it? It's like, what if I told you there's no such thing as the complex code? Because there isn't, right? Eng English is not a fully alphabetic one-to-one -one grapheme phoneme correspondence written language. It absolutely isn't. And yet, and, and I'm, I'm actually writing an article about this right now because in my early days, I thought, well, could I, could I write a phonics program? If I were to write a phonics program or do an inventory of all of the graphemes and the phonemes that they corresponded to, and this is how these phonics programs sort of began all, all of the ones on the market right now began with um okay well these are the sounds that you know in in a standard english dialect people make what are the graphemes that can represent that very quickly when you ask yourself that question you get into this kind of cycle of going mm, there's a word i didn't think about if i if i don't include that word i'm gonna look dumb hmm. so i have to include that word to make my peers think that I, you know, I understand this whole system. And, and so it, it, it gets, it get, you know, these, these possible spelling choices for these sounds in English get blown out of proportion. And you get this thing that I call spelling choice hell, where you're giving children huge charts of, of you know, possible graphemes that they could select based on what, you know, based on absolutely no rationale whatsoever. And then you're expecting them to select that. And what we're seeing at Lifelong Literacy, because I run a, I run a, a tutoring practice that, um, that, that sees hundreds of, of children, you know, week in, week out. What I'm seeing now, because of the advent of programs like that, I'm seeing instructional casualties. So I'm seeing children whose teachers and whose former tutors say, they, they just, they're not making the right spelling choices. Well, of course they're not. 
<laughs> because you're giving them no structure whatsoever. You're just giving them great big charts with like all the things they could choose from and no way to remember that to recolor or to apply it. Yeah, you know, and it kind of um, also links up to the other issue that I kind of see a lot as well is where teaching spelling is basically just giving them a list of words and, you know, they've just got to work out how to spell those words or, you know, remember them, cover it and copy it down again. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got to memorise. And that's that short term. I mean, anybody who studied for an exam mm -hmm. in a subject that they're not really interesting, interested in knows exactly how this thing works. Mm. You can definitely pick up a bunch of stuff on Monday, commit it to short-term memory, and vomit it out on Friday. Yeah. And that's essentially what we're asking children to do when, they, when we give them lists of unrelated words to memorize and then test them on Friday and then tick the box. Oh, well, they learned that set of words. Next week, the sound is D, double D is in duck. We'll give them a bunch of unrelated words with those letter patterns in them. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. Yes. So what do we need to do? Well, big view is that um, initial teacher education has got to improve. Mm -hmm. and, and people like Pamela Snow and Tanya Seri, Lorraine Hammond um, in Australia and of course, the Reading League and, and uh, University of Florida um, in the United States. There are there are you know uh, the Ambition Institute and so on in the in the UK. Mm. There are people at work on creating a much 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 better deal for initial teacher education. So that's great. So that that that's what needs to change. It needs to change fast, um, so that teachers are, are are given much 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 better tools. In terms of right now teachers need to understand how the writing system works. So there's a lot of unlearning that they need to do in terms of not every letter on the page is a symbol for a sound. That's mm. not true. You've got to start there. Um, and we don't learn words. We don't place words into our long-term memory through visual um, memorization. It's not something paying attention to the shape or the color or you know all of all of those things to do with the visual representation of the word is not how we remember words so teachers need to understand what orthographic mapping is um you know which i've done you know i did a master class on this last year and it was it was two long hours just to do the overview so i'm not gonna go through orthographic mapping with you right now but pamela snow talked about it as being the intellectual property of teachers. Once you understand the concept orthographic mapping, mm -hmm. then you can start to bring into line your teaching with actually how the brain learns to store words in long-term memory. So, you know, there's lots of work to be done and there's no overnight solution, but it starts with teachers being wordsmiths and then teaching children to be wordsmiths as well. Yeah, awesome. And, and you know, it's, I think you really hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about initial teacher education because at the moment we've just got teachers coming into, you know, the profession underprepared, um, you know, and and for such a critical skill that we need to be, you know, giving our students, we're just not equipped enough to be able to, to teach it. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And and if you couple that with the, a political statement that I'm about to make, but if you couple that with the fact that teachers are underpaid undervalued and overworked you know and they've got to teach this critical skill with no tools I, I take my hat off to anyone <laughs> that goes into this arena and, and and calls it a vocation because it's just it's so undervalued and so hugely important hmm. you know if I, I would advocate for systems that actually made teachers into 
the professionals that they that they should be and that starts with initial teacher education but it also starts with remunerating them properly giving them really good working conditions you know and supporting them throughout their throughout their careers and i don't think it happens well enough in education definitely definitely um you know i think if we are able to get to you know that sort of zone that you're talking about um you know we will we'll see huge gains in in education and and the, the learning outcomes of our students but until it actually happens um yeah i struggle to to think about where we might be in a few years time so um let's stay on a positive <laughs> Fair um let's look at another focus area can we talk about writing next Ooh, yeah um something that uh, that i i hadn't particularly focused on for the, the, the early part of my career was writing. Yep. Everything was caught up in reading because the parents and the families that came to us um, for remediation basically said, I, I want my kid to read. Yep. And so I focused on that a lot. What I realized with the work of Virginia Bernier, because I'm a lifelong learner, obviously, so I'll, I'll read everything that there is to do with, with my whole field, but stum kept stumbling upon Virginia Berninger, Linnea Airy, um, and, and other, and, and that led me to, to reading more about writing. And I and, and then the, the work of Hockman and Wexler, and you know, uh, Judith Hockman and, and Natalie Wexler, when they brought out the writing revolution, um, I realized that there was this whole overfocus on reading when writing was the one that really, really needed our attention because writing is so much more difficult and, and requires the coordination of so many more brain structures that when I started to change my focus with my intervention students towards writing rather than reading, two things happened. The first thing that happened was that they got better at writing Mm -hmm. But the second thing that happened is that they got better at reading. Now, when I'd been focusing just on reading, they got better at reading. They didn't necessarily improve in writing at all. Yeah. So it was absolutely transformative. And then coupled with that was this Hockman and Wexler idea of building knowledge. Prior to that, I had been teaching children, you know, by studying words that were unrelated to any kind of knowledge building that they were doing unrelated to what they were studying at school, you know, like yeah. units of study on weather or animals or, um, you know, migration or whatever it is. I, I had, I'd been, I'd been using sentences to try and engage them sentences about my dog. You know, I had the, the default engagement sentence that made me happy. Cause I like talking about my dog. He's brilliant. <laughs> right? So I'll put my dog into any sentence just to get you to use a word we've studied. And, and maybe, you know, I, I was trying to engage my students as well by making silly sentences like my dog slipped on a banana or whatever. Mm. I realized that, that doing all of that built nothing in terms of background knowledge. And if you look again at the reading rope, you'll see that one of the key aspects of linguistic comprehension is background knowledge. How could I have neglected that for so long? So when we turned over to building knowledge through writing and writing about things that they had learned rather than just kind of what I call orphan sentences or orphan words mm. that had no relations mm. to anything else. When we started to do that and incorporate that into writing along with very high quality sentences, that was transformative as well for, for my tutors who worked for me, for me as a practitioner, and for most importantly, for the children that I was working with. And then that flowed onto encouraging teachers to do the same thing and the ones that have taken me up on that give me great feedback about 
oh, this is so much better. This is, <laughs> you know, this, this writing about what you're learning gives you so much more of a return on your investment. Yeah, and, and I, you know, what I've found as well is it can be so immediate, you know, the, the improvements in their reading and writing, um, because like you've said, you know, they're now using their knowledge um, and they're building on it constantly. And so when you're talking before about how complex it can be to write, they don't have to think as hard, um, you know, to, to call on this knowledge to write about. Exactly. And that's why, and I know this is a controversial opinion, but I'm no stranger to that, so I might as well <laughs> start as I mean to go on. Um, but um, there's a lot of focus on narrative writing, Brendan, and it worries and concerns me. There are lots and lots of, um, there's lots of PD dollars yeah. and PD money being spent on creating children who can write some kind of narrative yeah. over and above being able to respond in writing to what they're learning. Mm -hmm. And that, that worries me a lot. When I train teachers, I do an informal survey and I say, is there anybody here who's a published fiction writer? And one hand might go up in a thousand, yeah. right? So what are we preparing children for when we focus on narratives? What exactly are we preparing them for? Not a lot. You, mm. you, you can become a better narrative writer, yeah. but what does that really do for you in terms of building mental models about how this world works? Yeah. It doesn't do a lot. So then there's also this misconception in, in narrative writing that children enjoy that and it helps them be creative and it's fun. I can tell you. Right now, I remember every single day of my schooling. And when it came to writing narratives, for me, it was like, oh, not this rubbish. I hate this. I don't want to write a story. Who cares? Mm. There are lots and lots of children who don't like writing stories. It's not the best thing for everybody at all. You know, you need to give them the skill of actually writing, um, including, you know, all of the parts of transcription and responding to what they're learning rather than assuming that they're going to learn all that through this like lovely, joyful um, narrative writing thing. It's not, it's a massive, massive misconception. Not everyone likes it and it's not that useful. Why are we doing this? Yeah, I'm not too sure, you know, I think maybe it, it, it's a bit of a byproduct of, of the, the lack of teacher skill and knowledge in um, how to teach reading and writing. And so, you know, rather than looking for changes or, um, explicitly teaching students how to write properly, the easiest option is to just say to kids, oh, why don't you write a story today? And, and I think that's yeah. kind of you know, how we've got into this situation. And there's an accountability factor there as well, because if they're not very good at writing stories and if they're NAPLAN data, you know, if it, if it was a narrative that they were uh, assessed on, mm. you can just go, well, they lack imagination. They're not very creative. It's not my fault. Mm. Yeah. You can't get out of it if you don't teach children how to write informative texts. It's up to you. Yeah. You can't say, oh, it's them. They don't know how to process information. I don't, you know, that's, you, you're much more accountable if your students are failing at uh, informative than they are at narrative. It's easy for you to just go, oh, well, they're not, they're not going to be authors anyway. Um, are there any other kind of tips or misconceptions that you'd like to address? Regarding writing or regarding all of it, Brendan? Ah, uh, regarding all of it, and then we, we can get to yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's about 7,000. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one <No>. or two. <laughs> look, I, I, look I, I never say there's a problem without offering a solution. Yeah. The solution that keeps returning is that if teachers genuinely study more about how words are built, 
at the subword level, they're going to never be disappointed. If you keep learning about the morphemes that make words up, or you might even need to take a step back and understand what morphemes are, mm. uh, you know, rather than getting bogged down in things like syllable types, which are not morphemes, they're not phonemes, they're not graphemes. Yeah. So I have a big thing about syllable types. I, I don't think that's a great approach. Um, so, you know, becoming better and better at understanding really the, 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 the linguistic structures involved mm. in word formation and, and word transcription and, and word generation, if you get better at that as a teacher, you'll be laughing and you'll never be disappointed. However, your learning will never come to an end. I'm still learning stuff about all of this as well. It is absolutely lifelong. Yeah. Um, where are some places that teachers can go to engage with um, yeah, learning about words? My go-to is Etymonline. The online etymology dictionary is an extraordinary resource. Mm. It's extraordinary. Um, but like any piece of tech, like any assistive technology, like anything that you use in order to enhance what's already there in your brain, you've got to learn how to use it. So I know that a lot of teachers go onto Etymonline and go, whoa, that's way too complex. I have no idea what this means. Or they go to Etym Online and they go, oh, is that the definition of that word? That's weird. And, you know, so they need to be coached. So I actually do in a lot of my workshops a coaching unit that goes, okay, this is what all of this means. And, and you can you can get in touch with the author of Etym Online called Douglas Harper. Mm -hmm. And he's very, very amenable, um, you know, to people learning from him and and and, and ask him. How, what, what, how do I use this to, to its fullest capacity? And once you learn that, it is, I'd say, the premier tool for, for wordsmiths, for word building and word understanding. Yeah, I found it great as well. Um, as we kind of come to the end of today's podcast, uh, what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have or have been transformative in your own development? Starting with orthographic mapping. I think, I think that should be something that, you know, it's teacher training 101. Mm -hmm. It, it underlies so many of the other things that we do in education. So knowing what that is, really, really good idea. Cognitive load theory, hmm. understanding what that is and how that impacts teaching decisions moment by moment. And Ollie Lovell does a great does great work on that. So mm -hmm. his cognitive load theory um, in action, Sweller's cognitive load theory in action book, um, is a great starting point. I also think that. I've got to, I'm got to have to plug Ollie because he's got another book called Tools for Teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a much more science of learning based book that has great checklists and, and sort of th these things should be in ITE. They should be in initial teacher education. So th those are the tips that I would say, you know, you, you, you've got to get your head around. And, and, and part of that also encompasses this idea of explicit instruction and what it, what it's explicit instruction is and what it isn't and the difference between that and explicit direct instruction and so on. Lorraine Hammond is the person that you would go to for that. And then of course, you've got the Solar Lab. Pamela Snow and Tanya Seri at La Trobe University are doing these courses, uh, you know, it, um, uh, beginner, intermediate and advanced courses about the science of learning and the science of reading. Those are where people, you know, that, that, that in itself is almost would make you a fully trained teacher in primary anyway. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of, you know, for, for me personally, after 
engaging with the the uh, science of reading, you know, you do start to ask questions about okay, so you know, what does this look like in mathematics? And and so that kind of sends you down, you know, the path of um, the science of learning, where you start to look at uh, you know the different areas, whether it's retrieval practice or like you mentioned, cognitive load theory, and you know, basically how learning happens. And for me, um, you know, as good as it was at at kind of helping me in improve my own teaching, what I've found. Um, it's really helped me a lot in is actually reflecting, you know, so when things go wrong in the classroom and you've, you've got these mental models in your head and you can start to work out, okay, well, you know, that kid started to, to play up because, you know, I wasn't quite um, getting to him at the right level or, you know, this happened because um, we, didn't, we didn't go over, uh, you know, what they'd been learning about previously. And so, yeah, the science of learning, you know, I think is just so important for teachers to have an understanding of and, there's so much to learn out there, uh, you know. It is, and I, I would address like two points that you made. Yeah. The first thing, the, the first point that I would address and what you just said there was that, um, yes, you can look at what went wrong and, uh, and apply the science of learning to that. But also I do encourage teachers to look at what they're doing right mm. and see how that fits with the science of learning as well, because that's a really, really valuable learning curve too. Mm. This works. This keeps working. Why does it keep working? Oh, because memory and cognition, right? Yeah. And so that's really, really validating. So looking at what you're doing right and sharing that, and that's yeah. why we have things like research ed, sharing best practice and so on, looking at what you're doing right works really well as well. And also within the science of learning, which I haven't, I didn't address previously, was this idea about behavior management as well mm. and why children do misbehave and why and how we can, as systems, make it so that everybody has a kind of equal um, footing when it comes to being being safe and being able to learn. And I think Tom Bennett's work in this space is probably at the tip of that. Uh, that it's at the apex of of, of that uh, that that uh, body of knowledge. Yeah, you know, I spoke to uh, Dr. Russ Fox um, on my first episode, actually. And yeah, he, you know, one of the things that just really stood out in our conversation was just the links between, you know, teaching behaviour and teaching, um, you know, the academic side of learning and, and how, you know, explicit instruction helps everything, really. Um, you know, we just need to be, you know, like you said before, we need to be so explicit with what it is and what it isn't and, you know, go through those, those incremental steps that we need to take um, for our learners. Um, well, it helps teachers too. That's the other thing. It makes your job as a teacher easier. Yes. We want that for teachers, you yeah. know. We really want that so so that we can stymie this brain drain that's happening in education right now. And it comes back down to behaviour and science of learning. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, just before I let you go, what else can fans of Lindstone look out for in 2023? <laughs> fans of Lindstone, that's hilarious. Um <laughs> I'll be I'll be traveling the world again, amazingly enough. So I'll be in the USA and Canada uh, twice this year. I'll be in New Zealand um, twice again. And um, I do believe I'm going over to Hong Kong as well. So there's a few international schools in Asia that are now sort of asking me to come over. So apart from privately um, seeing schools that I'm, I'm uh, seeing or, or speaking at conferences, I'll be running workshops in these areas too. I'm trying really hard to hit all of the capital cities in Australia to run workshops and also to run um, what does it look like in the classroom implementation days with some of the, the schools that I've consulted to before. So that, that's how you get more of me. If none of those align, if the stars don't align with any of that, then I have 23 online courses. Here's the thing, Brenda. I was doing QR codes and online courses before COVID. 
Yeah. So I had all of this stuff because I realized that I couldn't clone myself and therefore people needed to kind of get that information without me being there. Yeah. So there's quite three of them that sit there on my website, ranging from like little $65 mini courses to this massive one called Language Arts um, that you can go through and for, you know, 18 hours or something like that. So even if I can't come to you or you can't come to me, there's there's online stuff with videos of everything that I do or have done. Um, that you can that you can easily access in your own time or as a group in schools and so on. Yeah, sounds great, Lynn. And, and once again, thank you for your time tonight. And uh, yeah, look, looking forward to to seeing the next book that comes out. What, what's the next one? Is it uh, writing writing for life? Writing for life. Although the second edition of Language for Life is in the works. Yeah. Um, so we need to get that on the shelves before that. But writing for life is basically written in my brain. Mm -hmm. um, so we just need to get that onto paper. I'm also, though, talking um, to my publisher is Routledge, and so I, I stick with them. But I'm also talking to John Cat with the permission of Routledge, who do these smaller volumes. You know, mm -hmm. John Cat, yeah. the novel stuff and the, the Oliver Caviglioli stuff and, yeah. and so on. Talking to them uh, just about a series about school transformation as well, um, getting getting vignettes from schools all over the world about how they entered the science of reading, science of learning, and the pitfalls and and the, the victories and and so on. So that that's in the works, but I don't know how long that's going to take. We shall see. Geez, sounds really exciting. Looking forward to that book. So um, yeah, once again, thank you, and uh, looking forward to seeing um, all of these exciting things happening in the future. Thank you. Well, good luck to you too, Brendan. I'm, I'm, I'm watching your progress with great interest. Thank you. <laughs> I think I was able to squeeze as much as I could out of Lynn in 60 minutes. Here are my key takeaways. Transcription and ideation in writing are kind of parallel to decoding and comprehension in reading, but they are not a mirror of each other. We need to avoid drive-by PD, it shouldn't be left up to teachers to choose phonics programs. Systems and schools should be choosing it. Teachers need to be wordsmiths so that they can teach our students to be. The importance of understanding orthographic mapping. Why students need to write about what they are learning. And how we need to move away from this focus on narrative writing. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and please get in contact if you have any feedback or suggestions for the future. As always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.